Welcome back to Around the Farm, the podcast about all things ag. I'm your host, Clint Schaffer, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Diana Bagnell from the Soil Health Institute. And we're going to be digging deep into that soil to understand how improving soil health can impact your bottom line. Stay tuned. Well, Dr. Bagnell, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thanks, Clint. I'm really glad to be here. And my name is Diana Bagnell. I'm a research soil scientist at the Soil Health Institute. Where's your uh, kind of your, your passion or your interest uh, in agriculture? Where, where'd that kind of get it started at? Yeah, well, I've, I've always been interested um, in agriculture, even though I didn't grow up farming, but I was a 4-H kid and learned a lot of skills in that program. I went to a junior college for a little while and ended up working in a soil science lab, as things would have it, and just couldn't get away. Uh, so finished up a, an undergraduate degree and a master's in soil science. Um, I was out for a little bit and then decided to come back and get a PhD. What made you want to, you know, come back in and and go pursue a, a doctorate then? Yeah. So when I was out um, of, of my master's program, I worked as a project manager in research. And so I got to spend a lot of time working with folks who were doing great research every day and got interested in how that research gets applied in the real world. So when I wanted to learn more, uh, I pursued an interdisciplinary doctorate. So I was working in economics, in sociology, and in soil health. So um, I really wanted to understand how we can uh, take all the great research that we do and make sure it gets applied. And so when I graduated and had the chance to interview at SHI, I was thrilled because that's exactly what we do every day. Well, so so the the Soil Health Institute SHI uh, that's a that's a nonprofit, correct? It is. We're a nonprofit focused on uh, soil health. Nice, nice. Now, does that go into? I mean, when we talk about soil health, uh, that's I, I would uh, I would assume that's not just everything that's in the soil, but also then the practices that are being done on that land as well. That's right. There's really, um, what I love about soil health is it's a really holistic concept. And you mentioned practices. Um, we think about principles of soil health management. Uh, so the NRCS has done a great job of defining soil health management principles for things, for example, like trying to disturb our soils as little as possible, making sure that we have living roots in the soil as much as we can, um, as well making sure that our, we have residue on our soil and it's armored and that we have plant diversity. So, of course, soils are really different in different places. I'm sure your listeners know, you know, have dealt with different soil types across their regions. And then, of course, lots of differences as we move into different areas of the country. And so when we think about our soil health management, we want to align with those principles in a way that makes sense for the context that we're in. You know, you, you mentioned different soil types. Uh, we, we farm Mississippi river bottoms, and uh, and it's interesting. I always uh, point out one of our fields where you go from pure blow sand down to Mississippi muck within about 10 foot, right? So uh, it's like the two extremes. One's burning up and one's drowned out and full of water. And uh, it's really interesting when you when you see the dynamic of, of some of these fields that are out there. Uh, soil type changes are, I mean, that's a, a, a key a key valuable uh, or a valuable aspect on uh, on yield as well. So, yeah, and our farmers, of course, have so much experience understanding that different soils have different yield potentials. And I think one reason that soil health resonates with people is that we also have different soil health potential in the same way that we as humans have different kind of capabilities. 
Um, so there are certain things that we can all be healthy, but some of us may have, uh, you know, a skill set that makes us better at one sport than another. And so in soil health, we do have to think about that context and how we can manage well, um, but we make sure we have realistic goals for the particular soil types that we're at. And of course, that interacts, as you mentioned, with how we manage our soils and then with the yield that we can expect from them. So on that, it's almost the thought of farming farming for the soil type itself. I mean, that it, it, I would assume that, that it has a, a maximum productivity level uh, that, that each soil type would have. Uh, and no matter what you do, I would assume uh, it's going to max out at some point. And, and it may be different than the, than the next soil type. That's absolutely right. And I think a lot of SHI's work um, has been in trying to first understand, because there's, there's over 30 different ways to measure soil health. And in 2019, we did some work sampling 124 different long-term research sites across the continent. And our goal was to try and really understand which of all these measurements kind of help us understand what, how the soil is responding to management so that we can maybe use a smaller suite and we understand how to use just a few that can tell us where we all are on our soil health journey. And so that work has been really foundational to something we're trying now which is to, to locally establish reasonable um, thresholds. You mentioned maximums or targets so that we know how good a particular soil can get. We have the right expectations. Uh, someplace this works in a lot, you know, we get a lot of questions about folks interested in soil carbon. Well, how much carbon can I get and how fast can I get it? And those can be soil types questions. They include geography and, and climate. And so there's just not one size fits all kind of a prescription that we can give to everybody all at once. So I, I got you've you've sparked a couple questions here in, the, in in that. So the first one I'm going to talk about is you talked about you know uh, running samples and and looking and, and quantifying a lot of a lot of these pieces. Uh, I used to pull soil soil cores right for a for a soil sampling company, and uh, uh, you know we did everything from ten acre grids down to two and a half acre grids down to pulling on soil types, right? Which was the in in our opinion that's what we were trying to get down into, right? To understand that that soil type. Um, are you pulling more, you know, we're pulling like the basic information on soil when we're doing that typically. And we're trying to put together variable rate, you know, uh, fertilizer prescriptions or things of that nature. How much more information, you know, is, is a SHI pulling in a, in a soil core or even the depth, right? We're probably only pulling, you know, let's say an eight inch core. Uh, I would assume you guys are even looking at maybe some of the subsoil categories as well. Those are all great questions. And yeah, we do certainly like to see sampling that takes into account that soil, those soil types, that natural variability in the field. Um, and it, this is a really annoying scientist answer, but it depends. Um, you know, there are some projects that we might be in where we have a really specific science question. You know, we really want to know about the water dynamics in this field, and we may be going down to, you know, a meter or two meters. But with the, some of the discussion that we're having around a general soil health I think we can stay in those those top, um, you know, 30 centimeters, top six inches um, for a lot of this work. And, and that means that we're just trying to understand how our management that we're mostly doing at the surface is affecting things over time. And one of the things we can do to help us understand that better when we know our soil type is compare our soil that we're managing for, for an agricultural purpose to something that really has all of the characteristics 
of the soil health management principles we talked about. So we might go find a field that is in really rich perennial grassland vegetation and it's just, you know, exactly how that soil was developed uh, historically and can go, wow, we find that in this soil, this is how stable the aggregates are. And so that's our goal. Now we want to get our, our aggregates in our farm fields more like that, that goal. Whereas if we went to a different soil type, we might go, well, gosh, you know, we're doing the same test, but we got different results, even in that best case scenario. So we might scroll and take that target back a little bit for a different soil type. So with, with the soil types on, on that piece, if if you have the same soil types, but let's say in different uh, environments, so I, let's say I go from into a different state, but it's uh, the, you know the same soil type, are, is it truly identical, or are there other factors that that factor in that that make it a little bit different, even from one location to the other, if you're in the same type of soil type? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, definitely, it can, it's going to differ based on geography. So I was raised in Texas. And, um, you know, we say that it rains uh, in some of those places like where I, where I was raised about 32 inches a year and you'd like to be there the day that that happens. Um, so there's, there's these water dynamics that are just really unique to that state, something really different that you'd see, um, you know, in the Midwest. And so certainly when we're trying to understand what the best the soil can do, we need to take in all those, those features. Now, as far as you know, there's a lot of financial aspect that's that's tied into this as well. When a farmer's making, you know, different decisions and and changing practices and things of that nature, uh, what are some of the financial you know pieces that, that that you would lay out to a farmer of saying, hey, this is why soil health makes sense, or this is why focusing on soil health makes sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, soil health is so holistic, and I think encouraging the, you know, to think about that economics piece early on is really useful. So some of the work we've done in this area has been, um, just last year we wrapped up an analysis of 100 different farms, um, and we interviewed those 100 farmers across nine Midwestern states, and they were in corn and soy rotations. And so what we were doing was having them sit down with one of our agricultural economists and answer questions about what they do now in their soil health management systems and what they used to do. And then we were able to, to compare the budgets of how, what costs they incurred. For example, they might be paying for cover crop seed. That's an expense. But they might have reductions in costs too, like reduced labor or reduced time in the field. And I've got a few notes here. From those 100 farmers, 97 of them said that their crops were more resilient to extreme weather. Um, 85 said that their net farm income increased. And so for corn rotations, um, they increased uh, the, by about $52 an acre on average. So that's an average. Some folks had more than that and some less. But about half of that value, about 24 of those $52, came from reduced expenses. So when we think about the ability to, for example, stop tilling so much to align with that principle of reducing disturbance in our soil, as soon as we adopt that practice, we immediately gain the benefit of we're not paying for those that fuel cost anymore. And so improving that net farm income in reducing costs as well as in some cases increasing yield is one of the things we think is really encouraging that as we do more of these that farmers can see in their region, hey, I could be saving some money going to soil health. Well, and, and, and you bring up, you know, the, the tillage piece. I, I always think, I mean, that's the, the first thing that, uh, that my mind goes to on, on soil health, right? Uh, switch over to no-till and, and you're going to see that soil health uh, start, start increasing. Um, as we start looking at, at making some of those changes on farm, 
we hear no-till a lot. What are what are some of the other practices that that, that farmers can start thinking or associating back to back to soil health as well? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. There's so much there. Um, you know, first of all, I'll say that we do think all soils can be healthy, and there are some rotations. Peanuts, for example, that's going to be a really really difficult rotation to start rolling back your tillage on. And so we might think, well, we may be limited in that rotation to how much we can reduce tillage. But we might be able to really increase the days of the year that we have living roots in that soil if we were to use a cover crop. Or perhaps we're able to get some biodiversity by including something different in our rotation or even including grazing in our rotation. Um, So looking to some of those other soil health principles. And, you know, I want to be careful because this is such a local application that, you know, to be able to just broadcast out a particular practice is, is tricky. But I think all the farmer mentors, the farmers who are out there doing a really great job of this, um, started small. They made sure that that something worked for their individual system. They might have taken, you know, 10 acres or 20 acres at first to see what worked for them. And then kind of anecdotally, I've also heard a lot of folks say, if you're going to reduce your tillage, really think about starting cover crops first. Because um, a lot of the problems you run into when you do reduce tillage, you might be able to kind of stave off. If you've already got some extra organic matter in your soil, if you've already got some protection on that soil surface. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of different ways things that can be done, uh, but those are a few examples. You know, I, I was talking to a, a farmer friend of mine out in Nebraska, uh, John Olerking, and, uh, and he does a, a lot of uh, cover crops, right? And, uh, and it was fascinating to me to hear all the different types of, I always thought like, it's like you plant a cover crop, right? That, uh, that's where my mind always went. You know, you look at like fields of rye or something of that nature, right? I didn't realize that they were putting together all of these different cocktail mixes, as I think was the, the terminology that, that, that he was using when I was talking to him. But, you know, different things to break up compaction, different ones to hold uh, nitrogen in the soil, different things of that nature. How, how many of, of these different variations of cover crops are you, are you looking at or testing or things of that nature? Yeah, well, that's, uh, there's so much there. Uh, books have been written on it, I'm sure. But I would say that, you know, the first piece, like we talked about, is to start small and for something that's manageable. So if you've never start planted a cover crop before, I think the most important thing is to, to see that it's doing well in your area. Uh, maybe an agronomist or a crop consultant in your area has some experience. Um, there can be a lot of different options, as you mentioned, but I would think about um, some big categories, like is it just a grass? Maybe I want to add a legume so I can get some nitrogen fixation. Um, some folks are talking, you know, you mentioned uh, different root structures there. You might want to break up compaction. And so I think diversity is big, but the first thing is we want to have increase the number of days every year that photosynthesis is happening in your field because that's how carbon is being taken from the atmosphere from CO2 stored in the plant and then as that plant decomposes it's going into soil carbon and it's sitting on the surface as residue. So regardless of what kind of crop you have you want to see that it's really healthy that it's doing producing a lot of biomass and that you're able to have that biomass stick around. So if, if a farmer's looking at, at getting into that, that cover crop, we're actually uh, on Chaffer Farms this year. Uh, we're actually trying uh, uh, 30, right up 35 acres of, uh, of a rye cover crop in some of our toughest ground. And this is stuff that we've been deep tilling for, for quite some time, right? Because of the, uh, it's pretty, pretty wet ground and, and things of that nature. So we wanted to try this, uh, try this cover crop. Um, and, uh, and, and there was a lot of, 
a lot of different uh, resources out there. Where would you point a farmer to to to, to start with? You know, we, we were lucky to have a friend that was that was kind of helping us out along the way. But where would a farmer go to to maybe get some of that information to say, hey, I'd like to start trying, you know, maybe some of these different uh, pieces on my operation? Yeah, that's a great question. But I think you did everything perfect um, because I think the very best outcome is that you're working with someone who kind of has a feel and they've done this before in your area. And so when we work in an, a region, um, we make sure that we're highlighting and partnering with local farmers who've been successful. Um, kind of parachuting in a scientist <laughs> can, can help sometimes, but you know what's really good is being able to have that network and community. So the first choice would be that there's a farmer in the area who has a little bit of, of a you know, head start on you that can coach you through that. Um, if that's not possible, local NRCS and Extension uh, may have opportunities that, you know, someone that you can get out there. There may be a local agronomist, a local crop consultant um, who has experience. Um, and certainly we'd like to be a resource for folks in connecting the dots and making sure that we, we strengthen those local networks because that's where, you know, that's what you need is you don't just need to get it started. Then when you're like, gosh, I got to terminate this stuff and figure out if I can plan into it, you need someone to call. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pause just for a minute because I have two puppies that are fighting behind me and I know they're about ready to start barking. So I'm just going to. All right. Uh, hopefully they'll uh, chill out now. Nope. Hold on. One. So sticking with the, uh, the the thought of of cover crops and no-till and things of that nature, can soil types change as you're doing this? You know, I mean, like we talk about like increasing soil health or increasing the organic matter. Is that actually, does that change the soil type over time? That's a good question. Um, not usually. Um, usually we see that um, we're kind of progressing in within soil, within a soil type towards a more healthy form. Uh, probably what would be more likely uh, would be the unfortunate case in which, for example, we have a soil that has a thin layer of topsoil and it's in a particular uh, soil series or something like that and, and we lose a lot of it and then it becomes something else. But that's really rare. So I would say that in general, we stay within one soil type, but we can have an amazing amount of variety uh, in different types of where we fall in its soil health. So it's kind of like if I started uh, an intensive exercise program, I'm going to be a healthier version of me, but I'm still me. Yeah, probably not Brad Pitt. I really hate to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't change myself into that. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the other thing that, uh, that, uh, your, your previous comments sparked that I, that I wanted to talk about was you mentioned carbon, right? Does different soil retain carbon or, or store carbon differently then? Absolutely. It does. And I think that's something that, you know, as we think about these targets for soil health, we also think about setting good soil carbon targets so that we understand, you know, just in the same way as soil health, where we are today and where what's the best we can do? Does does different uh, cover crops affect the the carbon retention at all? You know that's a good question. I think that the, it'd probably be a pretty complicated answer, but yes. And I think that our conversation earlier about you know wanting to make sure that um, the cover crop that you're planting is healthy and really doing well and producing a lot of biomass, and that that's where our carbon is coming from is probably what's most important. 
Um, and then there may be some difference in type. So, for example, um, cover crops that have a lot of uh, like legumes may tend to decompose faster and, and have less residue on the surface. Um, so that can affect how much carbon is stored. Now, even even on like a, a no-till situation, do other other practices impact that? I think of like uh, a lot of these uh, corn heads anymore have choppers on them, right? And they're basically uh, little lawnmowers that are going across your your entire field. Does that start impacting just some of the the like the effectiveness of that no that particular no-till crop? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing that makes soil health awesome, but also can be difficult is that it's just the whole system, you know, in the same way that our health is impacted by exercise, but it's also impacted by diet and it's also impacted by our environment. Um, all of that matters. So especially when we're thinking about um, our, our implements and our practices, when we do go to no-till, we might want to be more careful for, about things like compaction because maybe on a tillage system, I'm going to come out and knock that compaction out every year. But now I want to be a little more thoughtful because I don't really have that as an option in a no-till system. Um, so all of these different pieces can can be, you know, and sometimes we like to talk about soil health management systems more than we talk about practices, um, because we, you might have a situation where, yeah, you tried reduced tillage and you really struggled with it. And then we talked about earlier, maybe going in, starting with some cover crops, having some organic matter on the surface um, and being able to then transition more successfully uh, to no-till or to something like uh, a reduced tillage system. Um, so all of those little pieces and tweaking it to make it work for your rotation, to make it work for your location, um, and for the time that you have is important. You, you talk about compaction, and I've worked with uh, different farmers where they did, uh, I think they called them tram lines, where they were basically running uh, all the pieces of equipment in the in the same path, right? And the thought process is if you're going to compact it, compact it really bad in one spot uh, instead of across the, you know, the whole field. And uh, and I, I remember uh, dad was always telling me when I was running the, uh, the auger wagon in the fall, because you're carrying a, you know, 800 bushel of corn across the across the field in in one implement uh you know that we were trying to basically create some of those tram lines uh during the harvest to try reducing that compaction uh but uh that was also gave me an opportunity to to throw out there you know it's an auger wagon. I always have to keep reminding you know the 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 listeners that it's 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 not a grain cart it's it's an auger wagon you know Yes, yes. I, I understand that can be pretty contentious, um, but seeing that we're a nonprofit and we don't do lobbying of any sort, I think I'm, I'm just going to have to to stay out of that one. That that I right down the line. That's a, that's a, that's a good place to stay there. <laughs> yeah, I will say that to your point about compaction, I think control traffic is one of the ways I would describe those tram lines, oh. and it can be a really important um, way to make sure that you are leaving a lot of that soil volume to be able to have the porosity that it needs. Um, I was in Australia once doing some work with a soil scientist there, and he was saying that he had a particular farmer who had compaction troubles, and uh, he called the soil scientist out, and they went and they dug a pit in his field, and then he also dug a pit um, in a neighbor's field. Actually, it was the gentleman's brother who had been doing, you know, soil health management for a long time. And just to see the difference, in the natural soil structure and that this individual farmer was like, I've never really seen what the soil looked like before it was disturbed when it wasn't tilled, but he went away and he didn't change, say anything. And then he came back the next day to the scientist and said, when you left, I took my tractor 
and I dug a hole over in this in this line of trees where it had never been compacted and just stared at and looked at that full structure, those natural units um, that are developed when we're not disturbing it. Um, and that that was really powerful. And I think that being able to leave that soil to develop its natural structure that allows it to store carbon, that allows it to infiltrate water um, and to prevent that compaction is, is critical and difficult. Well, I know I, I've even seen on uh, a lot on Twitter and different posts that, uh, you know, pictures of uh, folks that have been doing no-till for a long time and cover crops and things of that nature. And, uh, and one of the things I've seen they do is uh, taking pictures of the earthworm activity uh, and just seeing, you know, just the, the sheer amount and the number that, is, uh, that ends up showing up in a field when it is undisturbed. Do you see that with, with other critters as well? I mean, is it, is it just the whole ecosystem that really starts building up there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence that we can see um, different, um, when, we, when we change our tillage, we actually can see different microbiome effects. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that we, we think of the structure of our soils as that backbone and, and the highways and the structure that provides uh, all of the, the life that's in soil, um, what they need. And to imagine that we can kind of go through and destroy that on a regular basis and nothing will happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing evidence more and more that we do need to preserve that soil structure. Now, now I know uh, water's a, a big uh, big piece of soil health as, health as well, right? I mean, whether it's uh, uh, erosion, whether it's uh, drainage, things of that. Where does that lie in in your kind of, like your research that the SHI would do? I mean, are there like tillage trials and things of that nature that are taking place as well? We haven't worked in tillage uh, yet, but I think that. In general, we have spent a lot of time measuring different indicators of water dynamics. So you're, you've hit on a lot of it. Um, how resistant is the soil to wind and water? That's that aggregate stability. How well is that structure holding up? Um, we've looked a lot at infiltration, how different practices will impact the ability of water to move into the soil. Um, you know, in Texas, with, with infrequent but really high uh, intensity rainfalls, capturing as much as we can in a rainfall event is really important. And then a, another piece of the work that's so critical is looking at how when we increase the amount of soil carbon, because we've transitioned to soil health, we increase the amount of water that soil can hold. And that's been a really big piece of our measurements work, being able to actually then predict, hey, if I have this much soil organic carbon that I've gained, what's that going to do to the amount of water? And then what will that look like in my geography for my soil type? Will it mean that I can get another half inch of water, another tenth, tenth of an inch of water? I think those terms are things that farmers really have a good grasp of. I mean, if you say, hey, I can get you another tenth of an inch of water on you know, the fir first week of June, they don't need a dollar sign to know what that's worth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I can see why you went into uh, soil health. I mean, this is just fascinating having this conversation, all the different dynamics, right, of things that can really impact the, the health of the soil. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it on, on cover crops, but this can sound... Uh, fairly intimidating to a farmer, right? Uh, what would your advice be to, to somebody that, that wanted to start maybe increasing the, the health of their soils uh, without maybe going clear into the deep end, right? What, what, what's, the, what, what's kind of your best advice to, to get started? Yeah, well, we've mentioned today, you know, starting small in terms of the acreage that you're looking at. I think it's always important. Um, not taking yourself, you know, too far out of your depth and just taking some, some ground and saying, well, what happens when I start to reduce my tillage? What happens when I start to add some cover crops? And I think that, you know, maybe having a, 
a, a small enough investment there that you can kind of play with it and say, hey, I, I looked at reducing my tillage for three years, and man, I, I did not see what I wanted to. What is the piece that I'm missing? And to, you know, keying in as quickly as possible to other folks in your area who've made it a success. So I think that, that networking is really important. Starting small is really important. And then being willing to kind of tweak things and say, you know what, that didn't work so well, but this is a big system. It kind of be like saying, well, gosh, you know, I tried, tried jogging and I hated it, so I can't exercise. Or, you know, I tried this diet and it didn't work, so I guess I'll just eat awfully. It's like, no, then we can get creative here about what really works for me and, and what's going to make sense in my situation. Well, that's exactly how I how I made the decision to stop jogging right there. So <laughs> I, you know, that 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 hits close to home. So. <laughs> Well, I'm not well, that kind of a doctor, so I can't help you there. Yeah, there, there, there you go. So, well, Dr. Bagnell, I just want to say thank you for for taking time out of your day to to join us here on Around the Farm. I know our listeners are going to find this absolutely fascinating, and uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll you'll join us uh, down the road, and we can continue having this conversation. I'd love to, Clint. Thanks for your time as well. Hey, a big thank you to uh, Dr. Bagnell for joining us here on Around the Farm and, and really sharing her knowledge around soil health. And also, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it, be sure to hit the like button, share it with your friends, and be sure to subscribe. Also, Around the Farm is brought to you by Climate Field View. And with that, we'll see you around the farm. <laughs>